Part three, chapter six of Rubble and Rose Leaves and Things of That Kind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com. Rubble and Rose Leaves by Frank W. Borum. Chapter six. One. "'What do you say to a day or two together at the Nuggets?' asked John Broadbanks one summer's evening. "'I was just returning from a long round of visitation among the outlying farms, and, driving into Mosgyle in the dusk, met him on his way home to Silverstream. We reined up for a moment to exchange greetings, and he made the suggestion I have just recorded. The prospect was certainly very alluring. We had neither of us been away for some time.' There is no wilder or more romantic bit of scenery on the New Zealand coast, and a visit to the stately old lighthouse, perched on its rugged and precipitous cliffs, was always a delightful and bracing experience. "'We will drive down,' he continued, seeing my hesitation that any resistance on my part would be extremely feeble. "'Sidwell of Baklutha has often urged us to spend a night at his mats. We will break our journey there.' We can slip our guns into the spring cart, and the driving and the shooting will be half of the fun of the frolic, and we may have time to explore the coast a bit. I should like to see the reef on which the Queen of the Amazons was wrecked last week, and if we are lucky enough to strike a low tide, we may be able to scramble on board. Are you on? He found me very pliable, as on such occasions he usually did, and we spent a memorable week together. On the Sunday, there being no service at the Nuggets, we walked along the wet sands to Port Molyneux, and joined a little group of settlers who met for worship in the schoolhouse. We rested on the beach during the afternoon, and in the evening set out to walk to the lighthouse. It was a glorious moonlight night. We could see the rabbits scurrying across the road half a mile ahead. When we reached the crest of that bold promontory on the extremity of which the lighthouse stands, we found ourselves surveying a new stretch of coast. The cliffs at our feet were almost perpendicular, and far below us, the wild waves breaking madly over her, lay all that was left of the Queen of the Amazons. We spread out a coat on the edge of the cliff, and sat for some time in silent contemplation of this weird and romantic spectacle. Well, I said at least, and how did you enjoy the service this morning? The moon was shining full upon his face, and I could see at a glance he was reluctant to reply. I was afraid you would ask me that, he said at length. Well, frankly, I was disappointed. It may have been because I was in a holiday mood, or perhaps our long walk on such a lovely morning had unfitted me for thinking on the sadder side of things. But however that may be, I found the service depressing. It checked the gaiety of my spirit and deadened the exhilaration which I took to it. I went in singing, I came out sighing. I felt somehow that the preaching was mostly pie-crust. Obviously the fellow was not well, and he allowed his dyspepsia to darken his doctrine. Indigestion was never intended to be an infectious disease but he made it so by sending us all away suffering from the after-effects of his unwholesome breakfast. I usually jot down a preacher's heads or divisions, 
but I didn't trouble to make a note of his. It was, firstly, pie-crust, and secondly, pie-crust, and thirdly, pie-crust, and pie-crust all the way through. John was not usually a caustic critic. He saw the best in most of us and magnified it. His outburst that night on the cliff was therefore the more startling and the more memorable. I had quite forgotten what the preacher said at Port Molyneux in the morning, but as long as I live I shall remember what John said as we sat in the silvery moonlight that summer's evening, looking down at the great ship being torn to pieces by the waves on the cruel reef just below. 2. "'Why, bless me!' I heard a man exclaim yesterday in the course of an animated discussion at the street corner. "'If things go on like this, I shan't have a soul to call my own.' as though any man had. No man living has a soul to call his own, or a stomach to call his own. The preacher at Port Molyneux assumed, as he sat at breakfast, that his digestive organs were his own property, and poor John Broadbanks and I, as well as all the other members of the schoolhouse congregation, were penalized in consequence. Carlyle used to argue, more or less seriously, that the whole course of human history has been repeatedly deflected by blunders of this kind. The world has never known a more decisive battle than the Battle of Waterloo. But why did the Duke of Wellington win it? All authorities agree that Napoleon was the greater general. Lord Roberts declares that the schemes of Napoleon were more comprehensive, his genius more dazzling, and his imagination more vivid than Wellington's. Yet on that fateful day that decided the destinies of Europe, Napoleon descended to absolute mediocrity, while Wellington rose to surpassing brilliance. The Emperor was never so agitated, the Duke was never so calm. Napoleon, with all the chances in his favor, perpetrated blunder after blunder. The Duke seemed omniscient and infallible. Why? Carlyle used to say that Napoleon threw his brain out of action by eating a hearty breakfast of fried potatoes. In one respect, at any rate, Carlyle knew what he was talking about. As a student, he says, I discovered that I was the owner of a diabolical arrangement called a stomach, and I have never been free from the knowledge that from that hour to this, and I suppose I shall never until I am laid away in the grave, warned however by the melancholy fate which he believed napoleon to have suffered he guarded against any overflow of his distress his readers rarely suffer from the after-effects of his indiscreet breakfasts we read sartor resartus heroes and hero worship and past and present and never once think of pie crust or of fried potatoes it is true i dare say that all the people in the schoolhouse were not affected as john broadbanks was indeed i heard next day of one lady who thought the sermon very affecting it nearly made her cry she said and she felt sure that the preacher was not long for this world i would not on any consideration deprive this excellent creature of her lacrimal felicity but if her well-meant econiums reached the preacher's ears i hope he did not take them too seriously lots of people are fond of pie-crust but it does not follow that it is good for them the sort of sermon that would have stimulated the faith of john broadbanks might not have brought tears to the eyes of the lady who was moved to such a compassionate ecstasy but it might have been better for her in the long run john broadbanks found the pie-crust sermon depressing 
yet to a certain type of mind few things are more attractive than sadness we all remember macaulay's observations on the inordinate popularity of byron it is he says without a parallel in history to people who are unacquainted with real calamity nothing is so dainty and sweet as lovely melancholy and he goes on to apply this to the pessimism of byron people brought pictures of him they treasured up the smallest relics of him they learned his poems by heart they did their best to write like him and to look like him many of them practiced in the glass in the hope of catching the curl of the upper lip and the scowl of the brow which appear in his portraits the number of hopeful undergraduates and medical students who became things of dark imaginings on whom the freshness of the heart ceased to fall like dew and to whom the relief of tears was denied passes all calculation clearly this is the lady with the tears indefinitely multiplied now by way of contrast turn for a moment from byron to browning professor phelps of yale says that browning was too healthy to be popular he was robust and vigorous and therefore optimistic but he is slowly winning his way his star waxes as byron's wanes people find sooner or later that they cannot live forever on pie crust mr chesterson says that the bravest thing about robert louis stevenson is that he never allowed his manuscripts to smell of his medicines the tortures that racked his frame never passed down his pen to the papers spread out before him you read his sprightly and stirring romances you live for the time being among pirates and smugglers and corsairs you catch the breath of the hills and the tang of the sea and it never occurs to you that you are the guest of a man who is terribly ill you hear him laugh you never hear him cough you do not see his sunken eyes his hectic cheek his spectral form supported by a pile of pillows you reflect with astonishment when you lay aside the book that the story was written by a creature so pitifully frail that on all the earth's broad surface he could only find one outlandish spot a lonely hilltop in the pacific in which he could contrive to breathe by this time we may hope that our preacher at port molyneux has read the life of stevenson and as he did he must have resolved that however excruciating his dyspepsia his congregation at least shall never be infected by it i regret now that i did not ask the preacher's name if only i knew his address i should find pleasure in posting him a copy of the autocrat of the breakfast table for the autocrat knew something about pie crust the pie at the boarding-house looked one day particularly attractive and things happened in consequence i took more of it than was good for me says the autocrat and had an indigestion in consequence while i was suffering from it i wrote some sadly desponding poems and a theological essay which took a very melancholy view of creation when i got better i labeled them all pie crust and laid them by as scarecrows and solemn warnings i have a number of books on my shelves that i should like to label with some such title but as they have great names on their title pages doctors of divinity some of them it wouldn't do i should have been tempted to mark this passage before posting the book to port molyneux but the real extraordinary thing about pie crust is that the quality with which it is most frequently taunted is its one redeeming feature the feature that makes it sublime promises they say are like pie crust 
made to be broken when the most beautiful and sacred things in life are made to be broken upon all extraordinary things breakage comes as the climax of disaster upon a select few breakage comes as the climax of destiny the fountain pen that i hold in my hand the pen with which without so much as a change of nib all my books have been written will lie broken before me one of these days it was made it will be broken but it was not made to be broken the enjoyment ends with the breakage but with those other things the things of the pie-crust class the enjoyment begins with the breakage when i was a small boy i indulged in bird-nesting and i never looked upon a cluster of delicately tinted prettily specked eggs without feeling that each egg was the most consummate piece of workmanship that i had ever seen its shape its color and its pattern were alike perfect indeed i silenced my conscience as i bore the nest home by amplifying this very argument if i leave the nest in the tree i said to myself these pretty things will all be broken when the birds are hatched the eggs will be smashed they are far too pretty for that i will take them home and keep them i am really saving them by stealing them i now know that i was wrong my argument was made up of casuistry and special pleading in reality i destroyed the eggs by preserving them they were made to be broken and i cheated destiny by preventing the breakage i have traveled a good many miles since but every step of the way i have learned in some new form the same great lesson and when with reverent footsteps i have climbed the loftiest summits of all the truth that i first discovered in the english hedgerows has become most radiantly clear the two greatest events in the history of this planet are the incarnation and the crucifixion it is christmas time and we think with wonder and awe of the mystery of that holy body's making it is easter time and we think with wonder and awe of the mystery of that holy body's breaking it is communion time this is my body which is broken for you he said and in the making of that body and the breaking of that body the body that was made to be broken a lost world has found salvation end of part three chapter six recording by lawrence trask mount vernon ohio interface audio dot com